Hi everyone and welcome to a special festive edition of the FFS Show, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by the ferret. I am the giver of presents this year, Ali Bryan, your host, and alongside me with a sleigh load of festive cheer is Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? I'm well, yeah. I think my family might compare me more to the Grinch than a, than a f- somebody full of festive cheer, but it's certainly feeling like Christmas time just now with, yeah, with the weather outside. Baltic. So I'm sure people across the country listening to this will have be tucked up in their houses thinking what better way to get the festive period off to start than listening to us talk about fat checking. So this week's podcast, as I say, it's sort of festive special and we are going to be speaking to Eve Livingston later on and she's going to be telling us about all the misinformation and information around the festive industrial action which is taking place because nothing says Christmas like (laughs) industrial action and that's exactly the sort of way in that this podcast would take to like talking about Christmas as you can imagine and we've also got a fact check to talk about haven't we Paul would you like to tee us up with that yep so Ali's been looking at Stephen Flynn recently elected leader of the Scottish National Party in the Westminster Parliament and his claims around Scotland's share of Europe's wind energy capacity. So again, absolutely full of festive cheer, that fact check. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing says Christmas like wind power. Exactly. And it's worth, uh, we should let you know that this is going to be the last FFS podcast of 2022. Um, we will be taking some time off until we're next with you, I think on the 11th of January with some Great new features, great new ideas, and Paul will be even more high energy than he's been this year. So he's going to be bouncing around like a five-year-old. New year, new me. It's going to be madness. And uh, obviously, we will be doing our festive fact check, so look forward to that as another present to open on Christmas Day. So, should we get into the wind power fact check then, Paul? Yeah, let's go for it. So Ali, what was the claim made by Stephen Flynn and why did you decide to fact check it? So Stephen Flynn, who is the new Westminster leader of the SNP, um, he made this claim a number of times uh, and he wasn't alone. This is a claim that's been made by numerous SNP politicians. It's been made by the Scottish government. It's been made in SNP propaganda materials, in flyers, in adverts, in anything to do with their record, anything like that. They've been made an incredible number of times over the years, is that Scotland has 25% of Europe's offshore wind capacity. Stephen Flynn, he made the claim most recently in October. He's made the claim like quite a lot throughout the years. Okay, and where does the claim initially come from? And is there any truth in it? Well, where does it come from? I mean, that's the question. This is, in terms of claims that we've looked at and claims that have been assessed by fact checkers, I can't think of one we've done has been made for such a long time we tried to find out when it had first been made and the first time we could f- first mention all we could find was by alex salmond uh, former first minister in 2004 he was kind of one of the people who popularized it it was then made uh, by the scottish government in 2010 that was seemed to be the first time it was used uh, in an official report capacity and as i said before just by all sorts of you name it <laughs> um the S- SNP politicians have made this claim so we should 
firstly give credit to these islands which is a scottish politics think tank who did a lot of the running they did a lot of fois to decipher the evidence behind this claim if i had to sum up this claim in a sentence i'd say it was very 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 out of date and used broadly incomparable figures okay so yeah you mentioned these islands there and i think this figure has become a bit of a a debate point for both unionists and nationalists in scotland yeah. i've seen a bit of sort of reaction on social media to the fact check where people have said does it matter what the actual capacity is the point is that scotland has a very big wind power capacity so in yeah. your opinion why is it important to debunk these inaccurate figures there's no doubt that Scotland has um, a large, and the UK in general, has a large uh, offshore wind capacity. But there's a reason why politicians should use statistics accurately. If people don't use statistics accurately, then we're less likely to trust them. And it kind of creates a situation where people don't trust what politicians say. It's an interesting one because in some ways there's not that much need for the SNP to make such a bold version of this claim. Other studies and other like potential estimates of Scotland's offshore wind show that Scotland has a significant offshore wind potential um, and is something that they have utilized and can, could continue to utilize if Scotland was <laughs> became independent. So it seems just a basically quite lazy recycling of a statistic. Do we have any sort of idea of what percentage of Europe's wind capacity Scotland has now? It is quite difficult to say for sure. There's different reports and different bits of analysis that have been done. The case with offshore wind and offshore wind potential, there's a lot of different factors come into play. Measuring the 100% potential in where you could technically put wind turbines offshore is different to likelihood you could actually exploit of this. From the more recent research that's been done, now about 10 years ago still, from what we've looked at, Scotland's in the sort of mid-single digits, so 5, 6, 7% of Europe's potential. So what were the initial figures that the 25% or 25% claim was based on, and when were they first made? The Scottish government, who were being FOI'd, eventually said that they'd got that claim from two different reports. The first was a 2001 report called Scotland's Renewable Resource, which estimated Scotland's offshore wind capacity at 25 gigawatts. And the second was a publication called Wind Force 10, which was published in 1999, but actually used statistics from a different report published in 1995, which estimated Europe's offshore wind potential. And the Scottish government did a calculation to convert what was in the European report into a comparable figure to Scotland's number and gave Europe a number of 102 gigawatts. They got the 25% from comparing 102 and 25. The problem with that, primarily, as we mentioned before, these are two reports which are outrageously out of date and old-fashioned. They also, the two reports, basically didn't look at comparable figures. So the Scottish report was quite generous um, in terms of what it would give, what it would allow for a potential exploitable resource. Um, so it basically included a larger area, potential area like like land area. So for a land that was close, um, an area that was closer to the land and in shorelines that were deeper uh, and putting turbines closer together than the equivalent report, which they're comparing with Europe, which is which took a more conservative approach. So basically you have two different methodologies being compared in order to create this headline figure. So it's really quite misleading. My name is Eve Livingston. I'm a freelance journalist in Scotland covering um, all kinds of social inequalities, but specialising particularly on work and unions. Um, and last year I published a book called Make Bosses Pay, Why We Need Unions, which is all about the union movement with a particular focus on young workers and its relevance to them. 
Today we're talking about um, the strike action around the Christmas period. Obviously, this has been a massive thing in the media uh, over recent weeks. Uh, firstly, could you just give us a bit of an explanation of what strikes are happening and how they're going to affect people? It's almost difficult to give a bit of a summary because there are so many yeah. um, and there are new ones being announced kind of all the time. Um, I think what we're seeing is a lot of kind of traditional sectors that we've seen a lot of strike action from um, kind of continuing that over the Christmas period. So we've got um, RMT Union, who obviously have been out on strike mm. a lot this year, um, taking action over the Christmas period. Um as well as postal workers who again have had um a lot of days out of, of work this year um over the same dispute. Um so so they're they're both kind of on strike for various days over the Christmas period. Yeah. Um we've also seen kind of non-traditional or kind of sectors where there hasn't been so much strike action um getting in on the action. So Shelter Scotland um are out at the moment as part of a kind of UK shelter strike. Um they're out across the country. Um, and then there are kind of other um, workers taking kind of different bits and pieces of strike action over the period. So um, driving examiners, for instance, are out, um, I think, this exact week when we're recording, um, taking strike action over pay. Um, and, and also we're seeing um, the the border force staff at airports um, vote to strike last week. So that affects Glasgow Airport. Um, so that is not a kind of comprehensive um, yeah summary there are a couple that I've missed off there but it gives a bit of a flavor I think of the kind of scope and and range of the strike action that we're seeing coming up the main kind of focus on in the media has been around uh, recently been about the rail strike and the postal strike because of people talking about the potential impact that's going to have on businesses on commuters etc what do you think of the criticism around that yeah, I think a lot of the criticism has focused on the fact that it is Christmas and that people mm. want to send post and want to travel to see their family. Um, I think that misses the point that, that strikes are about leverage and it makes sense for unions to call strike action at a time when um, they can kind of use that leverage. Yeah. You know, when people are really reliant on them, that's that's the best time for them to kind of show the value of their of their labour. Um, because the, the amount of people saying that they're going to be affected by this, um, that, that just proves you know how valuable those workers are yeah. and the work that they're doing is um so i think there's that kind of element to it i also think there's been sort of media um you know framing of this which has kind of misled people so right. particularly in the in the case of the strike the rail strikes um you know as left the train drivers union are not on strike this time around yeah. so a lot of the strikes are affecting more things like um engineering works which are the types of things we normally see anyway in kind of holiday periods mm. um so you know the rmt i think have been trying to make that case on their social media that actually what we're seeing is strike action that kind of fits into an existing pattern actually of disruption on our railways um, and that, that's part of the case that they're making is that you know we shouldn't live in a country where every time there's a holiday the the railways kind of grind to a halt whether yeah. it's because of strikes or um engineering works so you know i think there's been kind of um a lot of flattening of the nuance in some of the coverage of the strikes part of the um, we, things we talk about in this podcast quite a lot is this sort of conflation between opinion journalism and factual journalism and we've seen just in preparation for this interview was looking around at some the sort of chat show talk about around it there was a claim being made that uh, I don't think people are going to have much sympathy for uh, train drivers who are on 60k a year type framing about this strike, mm. which is really interesting. And it feeds into a sort of general narrative about train drivers being well unionized and that being a kind of criticism in some ways. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, so it, it feeds into, a, as we've said, a sort of incorrect narrative, mm. which is suggesting that train drivers are taking a lot of strike action, which yeah. they're not. Um, yeah, as you say, it kind of feeds into this narrative that they're undeserving of, of um, kind of this, these high standards, when actually those standards and that pay has been achieved by this kind of strike action. Um, and we should be kind of looking at that admiringly and as sort of inspiration and motivation rather than kind of pitching different types of workers against each other. So, um, you, you know, or, or the kind of the so-called public who, you know, the majority of whom are also workers in whatever yeah. sector they happen to work in. Um you know, pitch, pitching the public against um, against workers or, or train drivers. Um, because I think the thing that often gets missed in these discussions is that, yes, these these workers rightly want to be paid, um, you know, adequately for the labour that they're performing. But they're also often making a kind of wider case about standards and about kind of how well, for instance, the railway is run. Yeah. And that benefits all of us. Another really interesting aspect of this is that um, what we've heard a lot this Christmas is particularly in a kind of post-COVID context with the hospitality uh, businesses struggling is I've heard a lot in media and uh, on social media that the rail workers are putting businesses other businesses at risk particularly the hospitality sector because obviously if people can't get to their Christmas parties or um, mm. get back from their Christmas parties then uh, you know it might have a massive impact on the sort of seasonal trade which people are saying is what the, the hospitality sector is really desperate for right now what's your take on that? Well again it's a framing that is the the sort of bosses or corporations framing right it's not saying like what about yeah. hospitality workers who are struggling who are going to struggle to get home you know because they'll be affected by these strikes mm. too nobody's really that bothered about that um it's all about this framing of kind of business and, and profits which is exactly the situation which kind of leads to strikes you know and it, which is exactly the kind of reporting that we see of strike action which is it kind of framed in the um framed in the interests of the the bosses and the corporations yeah. whose employees are going on strike rather than than in the interests of the the employees themselves so you know i don't think that's necessarily surprising that is kind of the way that um a lot of our media works unfortunately there's a lot of sort of shared interest i think between kind of bits of the media and between these big corporations and, and certainly between you know politicians who have a lot of influence um on how things are covered yeah, I think another part of that is that in a lot of media, often strike action is framed exclusively about how it's going to affect the public, the quote unquote public, rather than about the issues which they're striking about or about the broader issues which you've brought up today. One thing that I was interested to talk about, particularly from a misinformation perspective, was the BBC article that was written about how strikes were going to affect certain people, a few case studies about how uh, strikes were going to affect people. and. It was initially headlined around uh, a guy who wouldn't be able to see his son because of strike action. And mm -hmm. then some people on, online put a few bits of evidence in to suggest that might not be 100% accurate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, they'd obviously found this case study to kind of back up the, the suggestion that people are kind of being really badly affected yeah. um i think they've just completely removed him in the end because it turned yeah, out so. his plans wouldn't be wouldn't be affected by that so you know there's a really big question there about kind of due diligence and, and back checking um but there's also a question about how that comes to how that comes to pass mm. because you've 
you know, there's a decision made at the very beginning of that process that the framing of this article, as we've kind of discussed, is going to be about how um, the quote unquote public are affected by by these strikes. Um, as I said earlier, the, the public includes workers in various sectors, whether they're yeah. on strike or not. Um, and actually, you know, the people who are kind of most have their Christmas plans disrupted and affected by strike action are those who are on strike because, you know, they're not being paid for many days across the Christmas period, um, you know, at a time that's very expensive for for everyone. Um, so there's, you know, there's no article that I, that the BBC are running that says, like, you know, how are how are the strikers being affected over Christmas? Are they able to buy presents for their family? Are they able to pay to go and visit family members? You know, um, so I think, yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of think about how that decision was made right at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and then just, yeah, you know, the, the kind of lack of due diligence, I suppose, as the, the process goes on to put that together. That's all we've got time for for this, the last uh, episode of the FFS show until 2023. Paul, have you had a good 2022 on the podcast and in general? Yeah, it's been excellent. Um, obviously making my debut back in September and then sticking around like a bad smell since then. Yeah, well done. Congratulations. I can't believe it's been that long. Three months of pure fact-checking joy for you. Euphoria. And talking three months, there's a... An offer for our uh, Christmas ferrets this year. If you put in the code ferretmus when you go to the ferrets website to sign up for an account, you get three months for free. That's 25% off an annual subscription. And if you are somebody so generous who wants to um, buy the ferret as a gift for somebody else, you can do so with 25% off as well. If you go to the ferret.scot forward slash subscribe. What else have we got for our lucky, lucky listeners this year? Well, yes. So if you want to try before you buy um, a ferret subscription, we are making 12 of our best stories from 2022 available for free. So we're removing the paywall uh, over the next 12 days in the lead up to Christmas. So if you check out our Twitter page, our Facebook page, our socials, you'll see those stories and it'll give you a flavour of what the ferret does and the type of investigative reporting that we do. Excellent. Well, that's something to look forward to. We've got an insane, scary amount of stuff uh, in the planning for next year as well. So uh, there should be some even better stuff coming and also some even more stressed looking ferret journalists in the pub on Friday night. So we will see you next year with a fresh new FFS podcast. If people want to get in touch with the ferret or the FFS show, you can email us fact check at the ferret.scot or alternatively what can you do paul you can go to community.theferret.scot which is our new community forum where you can interact with our journalists and stories and polls and also suggest things for us to investigate in the future exactly we'll see you next time bye-bye see you in 2023